Hello, my name is Megan, and welcome to a special episode of Unaligned. As you may have heard, Wizards of the Coast released a new unearthed arcana titled Heroes of Kryn, and Dragonlance fans like me are beside themselves with excitement. I should start by saying that if you aren't familiar with Dragonlance lore, Kryn is the world in which Dragonlance takes place. Fans have been speculating for quite some time that a 5th edition Dragonlance setting guide might be in the works, and this new unearthed arcana all but confirms it. But before I get to the good stuff, I want to make an announcement. I am now running premium D&D games on Start Playing. If you're interested in having me as your dungeon master for a modest fee, please click the link in the show notes. As of this recording, I have two adventure signups available to the general public, both second edition Ravenloft modules adapted for 5e, Night of the Walking Dead and When Black Roses Bloom, starring Lord Soth. Also in the show notes, you'll find links to my other podcast projects, my Twitch channel where I live stream my 5th edition campaign, my page on the DMs Guild, my social media contacts, and my Patreon page if you wish to listen to special bonus episodes of this show. Finally, if you listen to this podcast on Apple or Spotify, please take a moment to give me a five-star review and help me attract new listeners. Now, let's take a look at the strange relationship between Dragonlance and the rest of Dungeons & Dragons, and finally, at the heroes of Kryn.
First of all, Dragonlance exists in kind of a weird space in terms of D&D canon. The player's handbook contains quotes from the Dragonlance novels, as well as a list of the Dragonlance gods, and the Death Knight depicted in the Monster Manual is Lord Soth, one of the premier Dragonlance villains. Despite this, Dragonlance isn't considered an official setting, meaning creators can't publish Dragonlance content on the DMs Guild. Things began to change last year when we learned that Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, the OG authors of the Dragonlance novel series, were writing a new trilogy of novels following some legal wrangling. This new trilogy is set during the quote, classic Dragonlance era, meaning around the same time as the War of the Lance, which is the pivotal event in Dragonlance lore. That caused some to wonder whether this might be kind of a soft reboot to bring the lore of the Dragonlance novels closer in line with the mechanics and ethos of 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. Suspicions increased when we got some plot details and learned that there would be an element of time travel in the new trilogy, inviting comparisons to the J.J. Abrams' Star Trek trilogy. But the new novels weren't the only source of speculation, since Wizards announced the release of three classic D&D settings. We already have one, Ravenloft, and Dragonlance fans were hoping our favorite series might be one of the other two. With the release of Fizban's Treasury of Dragons, we were teased with a canonical version of Fizban, a character which originally appeared in Dragonlance as an avatar of the god Paladine, known across the multiverse as Bahamut. Fizban's Treasury of Dragons also included the Dragonlance itself as a magical item, and stat blocks for Draconians, one of the staple enemies of the Dragonlance setting. Most interesting of all, for those of us who like to read between the lines and overanalyze everything, Fizban's described a first world, a progenitor of the prime material plane, created by Bahama and Tiamat, which sounded suspiciously like Kryn, considering that Kryn was created by Bahama slash Paladine and Tachesis, Dragonlance's version of Tiamat. But before I go any further down the rabbit hole, I want to shout out the boys over at Dragonlance Nexus. They created a complete, unofficial 5th edition campaign guide for Dragonlance called Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything, which is available at dragonlancenexus.com right now for free. It has everything you need to play Dragonlance, tons of lore if you want to learn more about Kryn and its people, as well as gorgeous original artwork, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything on dragonlancenexus.com. It's free. Go download it. The problem with adapting Dragonlance to 5th edition is that much of the lore of the original setting doesn't mesh well with 5th edition rules, particularly the rules for magic users. On Ancelon, the continent where most of the Dragonlance novels take place, magic is governed by a body called the Order of High Sorcery, or the Wizards of High Sorcery. All magic users on Ancelon who wish to achieve greater power, in game terms rise higher than level 3, must swear allegiance to the order and pass a life or death test. Any magic users who don't are considered renegades and are hunted down. So naturally this begs the question, what about warlocks and sorcerers? They didn't exist when Dragonlance was created, so they don't fit into this hierarchical system. Even if you play sorcerers and warlocks as being extremely rare on Kryn, you have to contend with the fact that, lore-wise, they are, by definition, renegade magic users, and must always keep their power secret from conventional wizards. This is obviously going to create a problem if you have a sorcerer and a wizard in the same party. Expanding upon this problem, what about bards, arcane tricksters, and eldritch knights? Where do they fit in? Also in the lore of Kryn, 
The gods and their clerics vanished from the world for centuries following an event called the Cataclysm and returned during the War of the Lands, which is encompassed by the first trilogy of novels. With the return of the gods comes the return of divine magic to Kryn. New clerics are trained and become the first divine spellcasters in centuries. This creates a problem for anyone wanting to play a paladin, ranger, druid, or even some monks. Have they had access to divine magic all along? Or did it suddenly return when the gods did? Even if they had power all along, how did they explain the source of that power? Lastly, the origins of the different races on Kryn are carefully integrated. Humans, elves, and ogres were created originally by the gods. Dwarves, kender, and gnomes were created later by a powerful magical artifact called the Grey Gem of Gargath. Or, if you prefer the revisionist version, gnomes were created by the god Reorks and were transformed into dwarves and kender by the Grey Gem. The existence of different races will need to be explained in some way, even if it's just to say they were created by the Grey Gem too. Half-orcs and halflings are problematic as well, since orcs and halflings were replaced by draconians and kender when the setting was conceived. This raises another question. Humans, elves, dwarves, ogres, kender, and minotaur all have their own particular homelands and spheres of influence. Where is the orc homeland or the halfling homeland or the aracocra homeland? But enough listing problems. Let's examine how Watsi is attempting to solve those problems with the new unearthed arcana. Okay, now let's take a look at Heroes of Kryn. After some introductory material, we get our first character option, which is a new racial option, Kender. Kender are basically the Dragonlance equivalent of halflings. Like I mentioned before, there aren't technically halflings within the Dragonlance setting. There's just Kender. And Kender are known for a couple different traits. First, probably most importantly, they are immune to fear. Secondly, they have a tendency to inadvertently steal all kinds of things um, from people's pockets, from people's pouches. They sometimes just wander into people's homes and take whatever they find interesting. It's never described as being malicious. They don't steal for personal gain. They're just kind of very curious and very naturally absent-minded like that. And finally, Kender have a special ability called Taunt, where basically they can drive uh, anybody into a frenzy by making fun of them, more or less. Kender, as they're described in Heroes of Kryn, are somewhat similar, but there's several important changes. They have the ability that's called Brave, which gives them an advantage on saving throws to avoid being frightened, or advantage on saving throws to end the frightened condition. They're not immune to fear, but they are resistant to fear. So it's a little bit different, but they've at least included a part of that aspect of Kender. Also, they have an ability called Taunt, which they can use to basically insult any creature as a bonus action within 60 feet of them and give that creature disadvantage on their attack rolls until the start of your next turn. So if you're fighting a Minotaur, you taunt him, call him ugly, he gets so mad that he makes a misstep and misses his attack. Finally, there is an ability called Kender Ace, A-C-E, like having an ace up your sleeve. Basically, a kender can reach into their pocket or their pouch and pull out one of literally a hundred or more items, depending on how you roll. 
Um, there's a D6 table to describe what you pull out of your pouch. And for example, if you roll a four on your D6, you get one random item from the trinkets table in the player's handbook, which I believe is like 100 items. So you could potentially have more than 100 different items that you could pull out of your pouch. Some would be very useful, like you can get a simple weapon or you can get a grappling hook. Some are very unuseful, like you could get a flower or something. And that's kind of the equivalent to the Kender's stealing ability, the way that it's described in the original Dragonlance setting. So this is described as being magical in nature. Kender are described as being connected to the Feywild. And these items that appear in their pockets aren't stolen. They kind of just magically appear there because of the, the Kender magic. This, of course, is a big departure from Kender as they were originally conceived. In the original setting, Kender are not magical. They don't have any magic to them whatsoever. The reason that they have all these different items in their pouches and pockets is because they stole them from other people. But that created a big problem with role-playing. Nobody wanted to play with the Kender in their party if the Kender was going to keep stealing their belongings. This kind of sidesteps that whole problem. And also, people didn't like the idea that Kender are racially kleptomaniacs. That's kind of not, doesn't quite fit in with modern values about how we judge the different races in Dungeons and Dragons. You don't want to say that a race is just naturally going to steal things. That kind of just goes against the modern ethos. So this is trying to sidestep that problem, sidestep the problem of Kender characters stealing from people in their own party. I don't know if it's wholly satisfactory. It works mechanically, I think, but it's a big change to the lore, and I think that's going to upset some old-school Dragonlance fans. We'll see how much of this um, continues on into the final version. Next, we have a new sorcerer subclass called Lunar Magic. So within the lore of Kryn, magic, arcane magic, comes from Kryn's three moons. There's the Black Moon Lunatari, the Red Moon, I'm sorry, the Black Moon Nuitari, the Red Moon Lunatari, and the Silver Moon Solinari. And this is where the different magic users get their power from. So evil magic users get their power from the Black Moon, neutral magic users from the Red Moon, and good magic users from the Silver Moon. Um, so magic and the moons are in the phases of the moons are very closely intertwined within Dragonlance. So this is a really interesting subclass because it basically creates the notion that you aren't drawing the magical essence of the moon by using um, spells the way that a wizard does. I mean, by learning the spells and casting them the way that a wizard does. It's just sort of this lunar magic infuses your being and you can draw upon it at will. So that's very that's very interesting. I think that fits very well within the lore of Dragonlance. And I think that this is going to make it very easy to include a sorcerer character within the Mages of High Sorcery hierarchy. Because you've already got that common ground because the wizards are getting their power from the moon and you're getting your power from the moon. So it works pretty well together. Um, and when you start as a sorcerer, a lunar magic sorcerer, you get a couple of features right off the bat. You get something called lunar manifestations of lunar magic. So when you cast a lunar magic spell, you can either glow with a faint light of the color of the moon. Your pupils can change to match the current phase in the moon. You can get spectral manifestations of the moons orbiting you. 
or your shadow can become can become lined with a faint light as if your shadow is in is is the shadow of an eclipse. You also get some first level features. Um, you can cast the spell Sacred Flame as a sorcerer cantrip. However, you can use it to target two creatures that are within five feet of each other, um, which is really interesting. So, uh, Sacred Flame only targets one creature, but if you cast this Moonfire ability, you can do it to two creatures. So in theory, you can just do this an unlimited amount of times, always targeting creatures that are next to each other. It's kind of like a twin spell for free, which is really neat. Also at level one, you get an ability, a feature called Lunar Embodiment, and this gives you access to subclass-specific spells, just like you do with Aberrant Mind Sorcerer or with the Divine Soul Sorcerer. Um, for example, at first level, you get access to Fairy Fire, Dissonant Whispers, and Sanctuary. At third level, you get access to Moonbeam, Darkness, and Blindness, Deafness, etc. But this is where the subclass gets a bit complicated. Whenever you finish a long rest, you get to choose one of the phases of the moon, full moon, new moon, or crescent moon. And depending on the phase that you choose, you get certain abilities. And I don't want to go through every single one because that's going to take forever. So I'm just going to choose crescent moon and we're going to focus on that. And I'll go through and I'll explain what the abilities do if you choose crescent moon as your moon phase. Um, and if you want to know about new moon and full moon, just um, go and take a look at it for yourself. But Crescent Moon is kind of cool. I kind of like the abilities that you get. Um, first of all, for Lunar Embodiment, you get the ability to cast the subclass-specific spells for, for free once per long rest without spending a spell slot. Um, but you're limited to the spells that you have. You can't just do it to all the spells. It depends on the moon phase that you have. So for example, if you choose Crescent Moon for your phase, you can cast the spells Sanctuary, Blindness, Deafness, Phantom Steed, Hallucinatory Terrain, or Dream, depending on your level, you can cast them for free without expending a spell slot. And you can do this once per turn, or I'm sorry, you can do this once per long rest. Um, and of course, if you choose Full Moon or New Moon, it just means you get to do it to different spells. Next, at level 6, you get an ability called Lunar Boons. And Lunar Boons lets you use Meta Magic at a discount. So if you have chosen the Crescent Moon phase and you want to use a metamagic ability on a divination or transmutation spell, it costs you less sorcery points to do so. And you can give yourself a discount equal to your proficiency bonus. Um, if you choose New Moon for your phase, it applies to Evocation and Necromancy spells. If you choose Full Moon for your phase, it applies to Abjuration and Conjuration spells. So basically a metamagic discount, depending on the phase of the moon that you've chosen and depending on the spell that you're casting. Also at level six, you get an ability called waxing and waning, and this lets you change your chosen moon phase as a bonus action by spending one sorcery point. So if you woke up in the morning and you said, today I'm going to be a crescent moon phase, sorcerer and then halfway during the day you realize that you actually need to be a new moon phase sorcerer you can change it by spending one spell point i'm sorry one sorcery point at level 14 you get an ability called lunar empowerment this lets you use special abilities depending on the phase of the moon that you've chosen so for example if you've chosen the crescent moon you have resistance to necrotic and radiant damage 
And I can imagine that being very useful because it's not something that you need to keep recasting or that you only have access to a certain number of times. You are just resistant to radiant and necrotic damage as long as you choose that crescent moon phase. And then at level 18, we get a feature that's called Lunar Phenomenon. And this is basically a, a really special power that you get. So for example, if you are a crescent moon phase sorcerer, you get the ability to teleport and you get resistance to damage, to all damage until the start of your next turn. So if you use this ability, you can teleport up to 60 feet. And after you do so, you're resistant to all damage until the start of your next turn. So I can imagine that being very helpful, especially if you're in combat and you find yourself within melee range of an enemy and you don't want to be there. You can use this as a bonus action and you can't use it again until you finish a long rest unless you spend five sorcery points. So you've got a limited number of uses, but you can get more than one depending on how you want to spend your sorcery points. So that's basically it for the Lunar Magic subclass. I think that this subclass is really interesting and it's really cool. And I think that it fits really well within the lore of Dragonlance. I think that this is going to make it really easy for players who want to play a non-wizard spellcaster to still fit within that Mages of High Sorcery order. But I think the downside to it is that it's very complicated there's basically three different options for every class feature that you get, and you can change them for every long rest. So it's not as if you're stuck with one option for your entire time at level four or level 14 or whatever. And I think that if you're a player who's going to really specialize, like let's say you want to be a full moon sorcerer, I think it's going to be pretty easy for you to stick with that. However, if you're somebody who's constantly switching between different phases of the moon, it's going to get complicated and it's especially going to get complicated for your dungeon master because your dungeon master is going to also have to remember, in addition to all your different abilities, they're going to have to remember which phase you've chosen and how that phase interacts with everything else that's going on in the game. I would love to play this subclass, but I would probably not enjoy somebody playing this subclass in one of my games that I'm DMing. I wouldn't disallow it, but I would explain to them very carefully, you need to be really on top of things when it comes to your different abilities, because I don't want to have to memorize every single ability that you have and always remember what's going to apply. So I think that it works, but it's tricky and it's complicated. And I wouldn't be surprised if this gets, if this gets simplified a little bit before the final release. If I were going to simplify it, I would say you can only choose one of these different phases per level. So when you get to level four, you can change from full moon to new moon if you want. But then you're stuck for the rest of level four. I think that's a more reasonable way to do it. Moving on, we are going to take a look at two different backgrounds that are presented within the Heroes of Kryn. One is called Knight of Salamnia, and the other is called Mage of High Sorcery. And we're going to start with Knight of Salamnia. So if you choose Knight of Salamnia as your background, this means that you are a member of the Knights of Salamnia, which is an order of chivalric knights, chivalric knights dedicated to justice and truth and goodness and protecting the innocent and defeating evildoers. And they're basically your knights of the round table, your um, 
your super good guy paladin type knights. Even if you're a fighter, you're kind of a paladin in spirit. And you get some basic basic background kind of abilities. So you get skill proficiency in athletics or survival. You get a tool proficiency in one choice of your one choice musical instrument. You get a language of your choice and you get some special equipment. You also have an option. You also have options for personality traits and options for trinkets that you can start out with. And there's some advice on how to create a Knight of Slamia character, which I kind of think is interesting. It says here, any class or subclass that has martial prowess can be a good fit in the Knights of Slamnia. Fighters and paladins make up the bulk of the knighthood's forces. Clerics, often with the war domain, can also be found among the knight's ranks. For a more unusual take on a Knight of Slamnia character, consider playing a bard of the College of Valor, or a barbarian devoted to the ideals of the nature god Habakkuk. So this is a big departure from the traditional lore of the Knights of Salamnia. Uh, the Knights of Salamnia, as they existed in the Dragonlance novels in the early Dragonlance settings, did not allow bards, did not allow barbarians. Clerics were kind of allowed to assist them, but they weren't necessarily part of the Knights of Salamnia. They weren't part of the order itself. They were more like support. And there aren't palad there weren't paladins in the original Dragonlance setting. I should probably point that out. There were no paladins. So the idea of a paladin being within the Knights of Slamnia makes perfect sense, although it has never been established within the lore. But yeah, they're not gonna let bards or barbarians into the Knights of Slamnia. At least they wouldn't have before, but it's 2022, maybe the Knights of Slamnia decided to get with the times. What's most interesting about this background is that when you choose this background, you automatically get access to a feat that's called Squire of Salamnia. And this is uh, kind of a departure I can't think off the top of my head of any other backgrounds that automatically come with a feat. That's a pretty big change in how, how backgrounds sort of integrate into your character. But let me talk about these feats in a little bit more detail. So if you choose... Knight of Salamnia is your background. You get the Squire of Salamnia feature, which automatically gives you the Squire of Salamnia feat. So what is that feat? That feat gives you um, proficiency with medium armor and martial weapons, if you don't already have it. It gives you an ability called Defensive Rider that gives you advantage on saving throws made to avoid falling off a mount. You also get an ability that's called Encouraging Rally that allows you to use your reaction to give somebody who's making a saving throw advantage. So it's useful. I mean, I don't know about defensive rider since I don't ever ride a horse in any of my adventures, but you know, it's it's useful. It's not overpowered or anything. It's it's it is what it is. Um, but what's important about this Squire of Salamia feat is that it is a prerequisite for three feats that you can get access to later at level four. So once you get to level four, you can choose either the Knight of the Crown feat, the Knight of the Sword feat, or the Knight of the Rose feat. And each of these feats gives you different benefits. You get different ability score increases and you get a special ability. So, for example, with the Knight of the Crown feat, you get an ability that's called Tactical Teamwork, which means that uh, it says when a creature you can see within 30 feet of you makes an attack roll against another creature that is within 5 feet of you, you can use your reaction to grant advantage on the attack roll. You can use this reaction a number of times equal to, to your proficiency bonus, and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. So basically, you can give advantage to one of your teammates. 
Um, and then the Knight of the Sword and the Knight of the Crown have, have kind of similar features. The Knight of the Sword lets, um, lets you increase uh, an ally's saving throw, uh, their saving throw roll. And if you're a Knight of the Rose, you can grant, grant temporary hit points to your allies. What's interesting about this and where it kind of deviates from the lore of Dragonlance is that within the Knights of Salamnia, there's an order that you go in. So you start as a Knight of the Crown, then you become a Knight of the Sword, and then you become a Knight of the Rose. Depending on how you were to play this, you could follow that same path. Whenever you get a new feat, you could choose to move up the ranks. But it also means you could be a level four Knight of the Rose. And that's kind of strange because Knights of the Rose are typically like the veterans, the officers, the the ones who are in charge of the knighthood, they're not typically fourth level. I mean, the equivalent of a fourth level person. So I don't know exactly how they're going to work that into the lore. If they're going to work that into the lore at all, maybe they're going to say that when you become a knight of... Well, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. I'll, I'll elaborate on this point when we get to the, the different orders of magic. There's also... Um, before I go on to the Orders of Magic, though, I want to point out um, some two additional feats that don't quite fit into either of the other backgrounds. One is called Divinely Favored. Um, it says, A god has chosen you to carry a spark of their divine power. You learn the Thaumaturgy Cantrip and one first level spell based on the alignment of your character as specified in the alignment spells table. You can cast the chosen first level spell without a spell slot, and you must finish a long rest before you can cast it again in this way. You can also cast the spell using any spell slots you have. Your spellcasting ability for this feat's spell is Intelligence, Wisdom, or Charisma. Choose one when you select this feat. So this is kind of nifty. I guess it basically means that a non-divine spellcaster gets access to Thaumaturgy and a first level spell. I could see this being very useful for, let's say you have a party where it's all martial characters. You need to have somebody with at least a little bit of healing. So your fighter, for example, can choose this divinely favored feat. And it's going to give them access to cure wounds at first level, for example. And then at level four, if you at level four, you can choose the divine communications feat. You can only choose divine communications feat if you already have the divinely favored feat. It gives you an increase an increase to the ability score that you chose as your spellcasting feat, your spellcasting ability. Um, it gives you the ability to read, write, and celestial and two other languages of your choice. And it also lets you cast the augury and commune spell without a spell slot. But you have to finish 1d4 long rests before you can do it again. So in theory, you can cast augury and then you can't cast it again for another four days. Which I think is kind of interesting. I, everything else seems to reset after just one long rest. But this could be up to four long rests before you can do it again. So those are kind of interesting. Um, I don't think I would ever choose that divine communications feat, but um, I think the divinely favored feat could certainly be useful, especially if you choose it as like your variant human feat. And the last of the character options presented in Heroes of Kryn is the Mage of High Sorcery background. So remember earlier I described them as the Order of High Sorcery or the Wizards of High Sorcery? It seems like the the Wizards of High Sorcery have decided to get with the times and they have rebranded themselves as the Mages of High Sorcery. This is in order to make their order available to not just wizards, but also sorcerers, warlocks, bards, and even eldritch knights and arcane tricksters. 
When you choose this background, you get skill proficiencies in Arcana and History. You get two languages of your choice and you get some nifty mage equipment. You also get a access to the Mage of High Sorcery personality traits and you get access to some Mage of High Sorcery trinkets. Um, and it's very specific here that you can be a warlock, a sorcerer, or just some other kind of magic user. You don't necessarily have to be a wizard. Um, so I think that's kind of how they're trying to adapt the Wizards of High Sorcery for 5th edition to try to get around these these rules that exclude everything but wizards. And I think it's a good idea. I think that it works. But one thing that I find interesting is that they describe the... Well, I'll just read it to you. It says, In past presentations of the Dragonlance setting, several Dungeons & Dragons modern spellcasting classes didn't exist. To accommodate these classes, the group known as the Wizards of High Sorcery has evolved into the Mages of High Sorcery. The group's distinct orders and signature robes remain, but the organization now accepts members from a broad range of spellcasting traditions. Members who find their magic influenced by the phases of Crin's Moons also remain part of the group, largely represented by sorcerers with the Lunar Magic subclass. So, basically they're saying that what was formerly the exclusive province of wizards is now going to allow sorcerers, warlocks, etc. So I think this is how they're going to, to skirt the lore as it existed. But what's interesting is that here it says that the, the, the wizards of high sorcery has evolved into the mages of high sorcery. So they aren't wiping out the wizards of high sorcery from the lore. They're saying that the wizards of high sorcery have changed their rules to allow different kinds of classes within their organization. That makes me wonder when this new setting is going to be set. If it's going to be set during the War of the Lance period, that doesn't quite make sense. But if they set it several decades after the War of the Lance, then the organization has time to evolve to allow these different orders or these different classes to be part of their order. So that's kind of interesting. That's sort of the first thing I've seen in this in this Unearthed Arcana that suggests real changes to the Dragonlance setting. Like there's little tweaks to Kender, there's little tweaks to the Knights of Slamia. But this is a real change to the lore. And not only it is not just a blanket change to the lore, it's a change that exists in world. But let's take a closer look at the different options available if you choose the Mage of High Sorcery background. So like the Knights of Salamia, you automatically get access to a feat that's called um, Initiate of High Sorcery. And as an Initiate of High Sorcery, you get um, some special perks. Let me get... Here we go. So when you choose Initiate of High Sorcery, you first choose one of the three moons of Kryn, which is the Silver, Red, or Black Moon. And depending on the moon that you choose, you get access to a special to an additional cantrip, and you also get access to an additional first level spell. And the options are based on the moon that you choose or the colors that you choose. So, for example, if you choose Nuatari, the black moon, the moon of evil magic, you get access to an additional cantrip. You can choose either Chill Touch, Mage Hand, or Vicious Mockery. And you also get one first level spell, an additional first level spell from the evocation or necromancy schools. So that's kind of neat. Um, I could see that being that being useful, especially for a low level spellcaster. And 
Additionally, you can cast the chosen first level spell without a spell slot once per long rest. So you get a free first level spell, and that's neat. Um, and you can also just cast it like a regular spell. But Initiate of High Sorcery is also a stepping stone to three different later features, or later feats that you can choose. Adept of the Black Robes, Adept of the Red Robes, and Adept of the White Robes. So the, the, the feat that you choose is determined by your alignment. So if you want to choose Adept of the Black Robes, you can't be a good alignment. If you want to choose Adept of the White Robes, you can't be an evil alignment. Um, if you want to choose Adept of the Red Robes, you can be any alignment because they're neutral. You get access to an additional second level spell of your choice. Um, the spell school that you can choose from depends on the different orders that you've chosen to belong to. But you can cast it for free without using a spell slot once per long rest. And you also gain a special additional ability. So if you choose Adept of the Black Robes, you get an ability called Life Channel. This lets you um, do additional damage to a creature when it fails a saving throw. If you choose Adept of the Red Robes, you get the ability to change um, your own attack roll, ability check, or saving throw. If it's less, if it's a 9 or lower, you can automatically change it to a 10, potentially turning a failure into a success. You can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. And if you choose Adept of the White Robes, you get a ability called Protective Ward, which prevents your allies. Uh, it lessens the damage that your allies take. So this is sort of like, I mean, I see how Knight of Salamnia and Mage of High Sorcery kind of follow the same pattern. So when you choose this background, you get a starting feat. And then at fourth level, you get access to you get access to additional feats depending on how you want to, depending on the path that you want to follow within this order. So if you want to be, if you want to pursue the path of the red robes, if you want to pursue the path of the black robes, or if you want to pursue the path of the white robes, just like if you want to be a knight of the crown, sword, or rose. The mages of high sorcery are a bit more restricted because obviously you can't choose to be an adept of different colors. You can only be one of them. Um, whereas if you're a Knight of Salamnia, you can choose all three different, you can belong to all three different orders. But what's most interesting here, and probably the biggest departure from the sort of way that 5th edition has worked so far, is that we're seeing your character's alignment actually having a mechanical difference. So, for example, if you choose a good aligned character, you can only have access to Adept of the White Robes or Adept of the Red Robes. You cannot get Adept of the Black Robes. And that means that the different spells that you get, uh, the different cantrips and spells that you have access to change. So that's an actual that's an actual mechanical difference based on your character's alignment, which is which is something we haven't really seen in DD 5th edition, but it's something very in keeping with old school Dragonlance. In old school Dragonlance, your alignment was really important and kind of determined a lot of what you could or couldn't do. So they're kind of they're kind of sticking with that or they're kind of bringing that back a little bit, which I think is nice. I think it it's kind of a nod to old school players and an old school way of playing. But dungeon masters also need to be careful because I think that the reason they got away from these rules in Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition is that it kind of limits player options and it makes the character feel limited by it, make, it makes the character feel locked into this alignment. Like, if you're a black robe, you're a black robe, and that's it. You're always going to be a black robe. And there's not really a mechanic for you to change back. 
So let's say you choose Adept of the Black Robes at level 4, and then you get to level 10, and you're like, well, I kind of want to have my character go through a redemption and become a good guy. Well, what happens to that feat? Do they still have that feat? Does it change to the Adept of the White Robes feat? It's not quite clear in these rules. Maybe it'll be clear in the final version, or maybe Dungeon Masters could just approach it differently. But there was a reason that they shifted away from that alignment-based character, so it's fun to see it back in use again, but also we all need to be careful that we don't fall into those same traps again. So I guess that's it. I guess that's all I have to say about this new Unearthed Arcana, Heroes of Kryn. I have some kind of mixed feelings about it. Um, I think that the rules that are presented in this Unearthed Arcana are pretty solid for the most part. They need a little bit of revision, but I can see how most of these will work pretty well within an actual game. My concern is more about what a Dragonlance 5th edition setting will look like. How do you make Dragonlance feel distinctive in 5th edition? I mean, if you look at the settings that we have, Forgotten Realms, Eberron, Ravenloft, um, Ravnica, Theros, Strixhaven, they all feel very different. I'm not sure if Dragonlance feels different enough from the Forgotten Realms that it's really necessary, but... I'm going to have to see, I mean, obviously I love the lore and I love the idea of playing in that world, but I'm not sure this is something that's really needed. I think that Dragonlance fans, dra people who want to play in Dragonlance in 5th edition, probably don't really need a 5th edition setting. Or perhaps I should say we don't need another 5th edition Dragonlance setting because... Like I mentioned before, the Dragonlance Nexus has already created a 5th edition Dragonlance setting, which is unofficial, but gives you absolutely everything you need to play Dragonlance in 5th edition. But I like the idea of this setting opening up Dragonlance to a new generation. So if you didn't play Dragonlance in 1st, 2nd, 3rd edition, if you didn't read the novel novels back in the 80s, 90s, the new novels and a new setting could introduce an entire new generation of D&D players to the Dragonlance world and to Dragonlance characters, and that's what I want. I don't necessarily feel like the world needs a 5th edition Dragonlance setting, but I would like a Dragonlance 5th edition setting because I want Dragonlance to continue on into the next century, well, into later into this century. I don't want it to be kind of forgotten about. That being said, I've seen a lot of mixed reactions on the internet to the idea of a possible Dragonlance 5th edition. There's kind of two camps. There's the old school fans who want Dragonlance just to stay the way that it always was and doesn't want anything to change. And you're always going to have fans like that. And then there's fans that didn't like Dragonlance for whatever reason. Especially, I'm especially seeing a lot of hate directed at the Kender. People don't want there to be Kender again. And those people are kind of like, oh, I don't want Dragonlance to come back. I would rather they did Dark Sun or Spelljammer or whatever. But I think that overall, your ordinary Dragonlance fan feels the way that I do. They want Dragonlance for the 21st century. And I feel that the average D&D player is curious. Maybe they don't know a lot about Dragonlance, but hopefully once the setting is released, if it's released, they will see what all the fuss is about and they'll come to learn to they'll come to love Dragonlance the way that the rest of us do. So thank you very much for listening. Please remember to check the show notes before you leave if you're interested in 
subscribing to my Patreon, following me on social media or on Twitch. And don't forget, I am now running premium games. So if you want to play with me as your dungeon master, you can do so by following the link to start playing. Maybe I'll even run a Dragonlance campaign if the setting becomes official. Who knows? If I get people, if people want to see that, they want to play that, just let me know. And then I'll see what I can do. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And I will see you back on Crim.